crazy. Hi, this is Serendipity Soup. It's a podcast about serendipity, funnily enough. It's about success, failure, hard work and pure dumb luck. But it's not a podcast about celebrities or Silicon Valley billionaires because, frankly, they're not normal. So this isn't about taking lessons from thinly disguised humble brags. Instead, it's a community of ordinary people with something interesting to say about how their life has turned out. If that sounds like you, get in touch. You can email me using soupofserendipity, all one word, at gmail.com. There might be happy endings, or there might not, because life isn't a story. It's much more complicated and wonderful than that. So, wherever you are in the world, and wherever you are in your life, I hope you'll find something useful to take away from these conversations. Hello, and welcome to Serendipity Soup, the antidote to celebrity success podcasts. My name's Matt Georges, and this month I'm talking to Camilla Waterman. Camilla is a stay-at-home mum who's writing her first book, but as you'd expect for a Serendipity Soup guest, hers is a colourful and varied career. I don't want to spoil the twist in this episode, so I won't say too much more about that, apart from pointing out that one choice in particular is quite a fork-in-the-road moment. If you've ever read the Blind Date column in The Guardian, you might, like me, have been struck by the fact that when the two people are asked what they talked about on their date, there's almost never even one topic that they both mention. It's like they were in two completely different conversations. So, when you listen to this podcast, you'll probably take away a different message to the one I did. But, as it's my podcast, I get to talk about my take, and it's this. When I asked Camilla to define success, she gave an answer that's pretty similar to the ones I've had from many other guests, to find something that makes you happy. But her twist is that success is finding something that makes you happy at the time you're doing it. And that's really important, because the thing I envy about Camilla is her positive attitude to change. Just because a job makes her happy when she starts, doesn't mean it will always make her happy. She seems so comfortable recognising when that point has been reached, and then simply acting to improve the situation. In that respect, she's a lot like my guest in episode 2, Nicole Shamir who was very comfortable recognising that at some point she wouldn't be the right person for the dream job she was in at the time. In a moment of serendipity, I was out with a friend just before I recorded this introduction, and having listened to a few episodes of the podcast, he recommended a documentary about the England cricket team called The Edge. As regular listeners will know, sports celebrities are my bete noir when it comes to career advice, but this documentary is different. It's roughly split in half, with the first part documenting the rise of England to the number one test cricket side in the world in the early 2010s. So far, so standard. But the second half talks about what happened next, the frankly insane mental and physical toll it took on the players, and a really strong sense of ambivalence about whether it was worth it at all. The serendipity comes from the fact that one of Camilla's jobs was working for the cricketing almanac, Wisden, interviewing players from the England team, albeit a few years before the events explored in the documentary. And what's crystal clear is that a significant number of the England cricket team at this time were trapped in their dream job. They either couldn't see that it was making them ill, or they couldn't face the thought that, with the management as it was back then, the only way they could stop the damage was to quit. Like so many well-told stories, it's not really about the surface issue, in this case cricket, but about the fundamentals of being human that lie underneath. So even if you don't like cricket, or sport in general for that matter, I would really recommend watching it. I'll put a link in the show notes. Right, housekeeping. The main thing to let you know is that I'm going to take a short break over the summer. 
The first of the month seems to come round a whole lot quicker when you have a self-imposed podcast publishing deadline. So, in the spirit of not being trapped by something that's supposed to be enjoyable, thanks Camilla, I thought I'd give myself a break by cancelling the September episode. I'll be back again in October. Housekeeping for this episode is pretty limited. It's clean apart from totally unnecessary F-bomb that I accidentally dropped partway through, so keep an eye out for that if there are little ears nearby. I don't think there are any trigger warnings needed either, so with that, I think we're ready to go. Time for a taste of Serendipity Soup. So, my name's Camilla Waterman, and I am currently, fortunately, at home. I'm not actually working at the moment. I am trying to write a book, which is something I've been saying to people for a while, but I am genuinely trying to write it, and it's actually always been what I've wanted to do, and I'm actually finally doing it. But I've had kind of various jobs in my life, and at the moment, I suppose I'd say I'm a stay-at-home mum with the the ambition to be a writer. Fantastic. So what's the book about? The book is about a girl who can see the future. And the idea came to me of, we all think how wonderful it would be to be able to see the future. But actually, would it be? Would it actually not be quite troubling and difficult and challenging if you could see the future? And can you see everything or do you just see snapshots so with my character she just sees glimpses snapshots of things that are going to happen and she then has to deal with how she can interpret those how they actually work or don't work out the way she assumes they're going to it's a sort of I guess sort of young adult fantasy type thing there's a bit of magic and you know stuff like that in there when it started out it was more I think aimed at younger kids perhaps as my own daughter's got older as I've been writing it I've changed it so it's perhaps a bit more kind of young adult teen there's a couple of love interests there in it now for the teenage characters so it's become a bit more I suppose a bit more of that that genre. But yeah, I suppose it's a sort of fantasy magical type of book. Sounds good. Sort of Cassandra-esque. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah, it's just that idea of somebody thinks you've got this wonderful gift, but actually does it sometimes do more harm than good? It sounds like a really interesting set of ideas to play with. Thank you. Well, let's hope it actually kind of gets somewhere. And uh, yeah, I think it is an interesting idea. It's it's having the self-discipline to do it and also to prioritize it. I think it feels essentially like a bit of a selfish thing to write a book when nobody's asked me to. It's just me saying, <laughs> I'd like to write a book. So to kind of make the time and set aside the time for something that is essentially something that I just want to do, I've, certainly over the last few years with everything that's been going on, mm-hmm. I think it sometimes felt a little bit self-indulgent, which is probably just an excuse for not doing it. But I do think there's an element of, you know, perhaps putting stuff off. I am a, a natural procrastinator, so I can very easily put off things. And I think this is one of the things that I've been saying for ages. Oh, yes, I'm writing a book. But I'd like to be able to say one day I've written the book. And yeah. then, yeah, that would be that would be the next step. That's really interesting, the idea that that pursuing something that's been a dream of yours for some time is somehow self-indulgent. Yeah, maybe I don't have that kind of, I don't know, that sort of ambitious gene, I don't know. You know how you read some people, they've written their career on the back of an envelope when they're 14 and they they follow their path exactly, and I've never had that. I've just had a sort of feeling that what I want to do is right. I think it is when I do it, I enjoy doing it, but I think it's one of those things, it is easy not 
to carve out that time mm. and actually get on with it. That takes us quite neatly, I think, into where you did start. So if you didn't have your career all, all plotted out very neatly, what did you have? Where did you start? Uh, really, my first ever job was working in a cinema just because I got the job. Yeah. I I was after A-levels. I took a gap year. I didn't go travelling. I can't remember why now, but I didn't. And I worked in the cinema, which was actually a really fun job. It's put me off popcorn for life. I sometimes think people come to the cinema, buy popcorn and literally throw it in the air because that is sometimes the feeling at the end, or it was when I worked there. But it was a great job. It was fun. You got to see, obviously, all the films for free, which was great. And it was quite a, I don't know, just quite a fun teenage type of job. I worked in the cinema up in near Leicester Square. So, you know, kind of coming home through Soho and everything as an 18, 19 year old, it was really quite fun. And, but it really was just a, I don't know what I want to do type of job. Then I went to university and then I tried my hand at acting, which is the next step. Did you, darling? Okay. I did, darling. I know. <laughs> so what did you do at university? I did drama at university. Both my parents were, were actors. So I think in the way that if both your parents are accountants, you sort of think maybe I'll be an accountant. I think I thought, well, that's what my parents do, so I'll do that as well, without perhaps really thinking it through more deeply. And so I did drama at university, which was great fun. And then we did this tour where we went round, we did Shakespeare, I ended up doing a pantomime, and it was good fun. But I think I realised that I knew already acting is a very precarious profession and as my mother used to tell me it is a life of constant rejection because very few people are Tom Cruise or Meryl Streep most people aren't most people bumble along kind of scraping from day to day sadly and I think you've got to have like I said that sort of ambitious gene to want to do it with your absolute heart and soul and it became quite clear I didn't want to do it that much. I quite liked doing it. Mm. If I got a job, that was quite nice. I think I was reasonably good at it while not being exceptionally, astoundingly good at it. But I just got to a stage where I thought, do you know what? I'm doing this for the wrong reasons. I've just kind of ended up doing it, not because I really want to do it, but it sort of happened. So I sort of thought to myself okay do you want to keep doing this do you want to keep plugging away and going to auditions and you know getting somewhere but not really and I decided I didn't I didn't really want to do it anymore so I changed again that was the the uh, first of my many career changes excellent oh intriguing and well set up I should say a cliffhanger if, uh, in in verbal terms yeah I think there's two interesting things about that. One is that, as you say, normally for that thought process, it is for the more standardised, for want of a better word, jobs like accountancy or medicine, or maybe, you know, in more manual labour, you know, well, my dad works at the, the sewage works yeah. or the mine, not that yeah. we've got any of those left, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. It's kind of that family yes. thing. I suppose I always think of acting as kind of family orientated. But it's interesting that you kind of almost fell into it just because. Because you think yeah. of acting as being so vocational and so kind of driven by desire yeah. that it would just be there and, and yet not for you. Well, no, and I think I just kind of assumed. I mean, it was rather silly looking back that why would you just assume you do that? But I think because it's what I'd known all my life, all my, obviously, my parents, their friends, I'd grown up in that 
business, so it was all very familiar to me. I mean, I think I was reasonably okay at it without being going to be the next big thing by any stretch. But I think it's more the nature of that particular job. You have to really want to do it because, as I say, it is constant rejection, going to auditions, being told no, or even worse, not hearing at all, not even being told no, just kind of silence. I'm glad I tried it. I think it gave me a lot of confidence. And I think I'm generally quite good with people. And obviously, by its nature, you're working with people the whole time and you have to get on with all kinds of different people who you're working with, who you're performing to. So I think it gave me a kind of confidence that I'm pleased I've got from having done it. How many auditions are we talking here? Because I think of an audition as like a job interview. And I would say I've done... Goodness knows, I'm going to pick a number out there. I'd say I've maybe done about 10 job interviews in my entire life. <laughs> How many auditions are we talking here? You would go for auditions quite regularly because you'd see something, you know, advertised or you'd be put up for something and you'd go along. I would imagine someone who's done it for their career, you'd be talking hundreds of auditions, even thousands if you've been in the business for years and years. And also... It, there are different types. So you might go and read something, but then they want to physically see you. Then it's how do you interact? Maybe we've cast somebody and we want to see who would work well with them. So it's not a sort of, I suppose, like a second or third job interview for a what one might think of as a more normal office-based job. Different kind of strands of an audition. Yeah, and then sometimes it's just more like, oh, yeah, well, you'll do type of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm, I'm asking you to pluck numbers out of the air slightly here, but what are we talking in terms of success rate there? You know, 5%? So? Yeah, I would have thought if 5%, you'd be doing quite well. Because as I say, there's so many actors and actresses and aspiring actors and actresses, and there's just not that many roles. I think obviously if you're successful, you're the first phone call. You're probably not auditioning at somebody's level you're getting a call saying would you like to come and do this we'd like you for that that's really interesting five five percent that's a total guess but i would i would but roughly yeah i think uh, sadly yeah which is why i think you've got to really want to do it there's a massive strength there to be able to keep going in the face of that level of rejection absolutely absolutely and i completely take my hat off to people who can do that and keep going and plug away year after year after year, perhaps not ever getting to the stage that they might have hoped they would. And not everybody goes into it for becoming a superstar or fame or fortune. People do it because they want to do it. I think perhaps, yeah, actors are slightly tougher than they're given credit for. So you gave that a go by the sound of it and enjoyed it, but and learn from it, but... Yeah. It wasn't for me. And so the next step was to become a journalist, as you do. I've always been, I suppose this is where the writing comes from, but I've always been good with words and interested in words. And even at university, I probably preferred the, the essay writing and the research to the actual kind of more practical side. And so I think I thought, well, that would be a good job for me. It would kind of play to my skills I did a kind of course where you become an accredited journalist which I did and passed and then I saw like three or four jobs advertised and one of them was to work 
for a cricket website for wisdom.com. Those who are familiar with cricket will know the name, but those who aren't, Wisdom is the, the cricketing bible. It's the, the yellow book that gets published every year with everything about cricket matches that year in it. And at one point they had a website and they were just starting up and they wanted people to come and basically be editorial staff. And I applied and got the job and started doing that. I love that. That was a fantastic job. It was great fun. We got to watch cricket, which I, I love. Got to interview players. Never got to travel anywhere interesting, which was, I think, a shame. But I did get to stay up till like the middle of the night because I had to interview the England players who were out in India at the time. So I was working on Indian time while we were in the UK. That was a great job. It had the, the people side. It was something I was quite enthusiastic about in terms of actually writing about something I knew about and I enjoyed. And it was a lovely atmosphere because there was a whole group of us who were young and kind of aspiring to do this, plus some older, more experienced heads who are our our, uh, our leaders. And it was it was fantastic. It was a, a really, really fun, quite fulfilling job, actually. You sort of think that the main thing that a journalist needs is the ability to fuck people over. <laughs> I think it depends what journalism you're working in. <laughs> right, probably at Wisdom less so. Less so, I think less opportunity at Wisdom. <laughs> yeah, I mean, funnily enough, I did, before I did that, I briefly worked at the Daily Mail. Shock horror. But although I always say to people in the books department, not in the kind of more gossipy side, but you could see, even being in that building, the huge pressure that some of those people were under to get a story. Uh, so I know a bit about cricket. I've been to see a few games, but I'm not hugely invested, mostly because the England team, they, they're suddenly doing very well again. But yes. as a general rule, it's it's more of a job to support England than, yeah. than anything else. And I suppose if my sort of initial response would be, that sounds a bit dry, but... You've made it already sound a lot more interesting than oh, that. thanks. <laughs> well, Wisdom, I think of Wisdom as an almanac. You know, it's yes. full of data, it's full of numbers and stats, and, and it sounds was, like there's more to it. Well, that was, I think, the idea of the website, was to try and bring it to a, a newer, younger audience. This is, we're talking, we're talking 20-odd years ago now. I mean, at the time, that was quite innovative because cricket was very much a print media that was the way it was yeah. shown to the public by journalists. So to actually be able to follow, like you now can, ball-by-ball ball coverage on a website, that was all very new mm. at that stage. And that's why I think it was quite exciting. And We would have interviews with players, just sort of kind of fun stuff as well. It was exciting because you felt like you were doing something a bit new. And also, I think a lot of people might think of just the England team and the England county game we tried to cover more widely international cricket so you know it'd have features on you know the Indian players the Australian players what was going on in Bangladesh like that so it was a lot more a lot more international and I think that attracted a different consumer rather than the person who would go out and buy the almanac which you know you might think of certain type of English cricket fan, quite traditional. But I think for maybe young fans who might think, well, no, that's a bit more interesting. They're, they're talking about New Zealand for once or they're talking about where do the West Indies go from here. So, you know, it was, it was great fun. It was, a, it was a fantastic job. Good. So what happened after that? So 
we were basically all made redundant. It was really, it was a, I think it was a money thing. Sadly, it didn't do what they wanted it to do. But yeah, we were basically told, I'm really sorry. We're going to continue with it, but we can't continue with everybody. So there was about five or six of us, I think, who were all made redundant, which at the time I was quite shocked by. And I remember I was the first of my friends who'd been made redundant and it was quite shocking. And then nowadays you think, well, probably most people in their lives are going to change jobs several times, maybe not always be made redundant. But I think at the time it was quite a shock because you think this is what I'm doing now. But I have always said to people, I believe things happen for a reason. And I was made redundant. I decided with the redundancy money, I'd never had a gap year after university. So I thought I'm going to travel. And being a cricket fan, England were due to go to Australia that winter and contest the ashes in vain once again. I was going to say contest is a strong <laughs> word. At that point, yeah, it wasn't. And I thought, right, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to Australia. I'm going to book myself onto one of those supporters tours. I said to the website, if you want me while I'm out there to do any little interviews, I'll do that. But I'm going, you know, as a sort of freelance thing, but I'm going really to have have a holiday. And when I was there, I met met the man who is now my husband. So that's why I say things work out, because we're both from the UK, but we met in Australia, which is random and bizarre. But I sort of think that was meant to happen. And perhaps the job not working out meant I went to Australia. I met Alan, my husband. So it all worked out for the best. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. It's one of those things that you can kind of tell yourself when you're in the middle of that. But it's a lot harder to feel it emotionally, to actually really believe what you're telling yourself. Because as you say, in the, in the instance of that, being made redundant, I mean, the word itself, mm. you are redundant. Yeah, it's quite harsh, isn't it? It's quite harsh. And it was, I'd also split up with a boyfriend at the time. So it was all a kind of things were ending. And so it was actually quite a good time to try something completely different. And I think travelling, which I'd never really done independently before, other than obviously family holidays. So it was quite a good, I suppose, independent type of thing to do, to actually book, to go on that holiday on my own, travel around Australia and watch England lose the ashes. And it was, it, it was fantastic. It was a, a sort of, I would say, a sort of life-changing experience because I came back from that, obviously, in terms of my personal life, I came back very in a very different place. But also just the confidence of thinking, yeah, well, something can go wrong, but it's okay. It'll work out. May not work out the way you hoped or you thought, but it'll still work out. Something will happen. Something will turn up and it, it, it will be okay. And you can try something different. So it's just really interesting what you're saying about the, what you got out of it. First of all, you came out of it. That's important. <laughs> Second, it, you didn't come out of it in the way you expected. And that's a kind of crucial thing, isn't it? Because this is the element of serendipity soup that I, I think is so important, which is that if you have a career trajectory planned out, then almost inevitably at some point you will miss that trajectory. Yeah. But if you don't have a trajectory, if you're a bit more fluid with mm. it, then there isn't anything to miss. There's just something to kind of work with. So you've got that time, so your personal life is kind of in a, a great place. 
you've taken time out. So what did that leave you thinking in terms of your career? You didn't have that trajectory. So where do you go from there? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I remember missing the job that I had done and that I'd really enjoyed. But I think perhaps because I'd already changed career a couple of times by this point, I didn't think, well, I will definitely push to get back into that that sort of role because I'd already discovered that you can change paths and it's not the end of the world. You can do that. You can reinvent yourself, if you like, or try something new. And while I loved the job, the only aspect of it that I had never particularly enjoyed were the sort of office politics, which were fairly low level. I mean, the team that I worked with, we all got on really, really well. But there were always external people and there were always little little niggles, little rivalries. So I came back and I was kind of thinking, well, what what could I do that doesn't involve working in an office, which sounds like. And, and maybe that was partly the Australia thing of anyone who's been to Australia. There's something about the light and the open space and it feels very different. And, and perhaps that had an impact on my thinking. I don't know. It was a very kind of random thing. At the time, I, I lived in an upstairs flat and... There was a chap who lived in the downstairs flat and we would, as you do, pass each other, say hi. And he was a driving instructor. And he would always say to me, oh, you should be a driving instructor, Camilla. You're really patient. You're really calm. You're good with people. Oh, you should be a driving instructor. And I used to kind of go, well, yeah, okay." (laughs) Um, And then I suddenly thought, actually, that would be a really cool job. Because I'm going to say this, and you may disagree, but I think everyone remembers their driving instructor. I do. I can remember mine. He was a brilliant guy. He wore a toupee, which meant that every time we did the emergency stop, it would go shooting forwards, which was... Shut up. It actually went off his head. It really did. He was excellent. His name was Jim. He was brilliant. So I thought, and, and the other thing he said to me was, as a woman, he said, you will always get work as a driving instructor because there are a lot of women who would much prefer to spend their time in the car with a woman, maybe because they'd be more patient, maybe from a kind of more, you know, safety point of view, all kinds of reasons. So I sort of thought about it and thought, actually, do you know what? That would be quite a fun job. And I think the other thing I've always been quite good at is if I decide I want to do something, I will work hard at it. So when I did the journalism exams, you know, I passed them all very, very well. I then you, There are three exams you have to sit to become a driving instructor, which is quite entertaining, actually. You've got to sit the theory test, which is a challenge because most people can't remember any of what the highway code, what the signs mean, because most of us passed our tests so long ago. You've then got to, if you do that, you've then got to sit your own driving test again, not making all the mistakes that have crept into your driving over the intervening years since you originally passed your test. Mm. And then the third and the most difficult is you have to teach the examiner, who is pretending to be a pupil, you have to teach them a lesson. And you don't know what the lesson's going to be. It could be one of, I think about, at the time I was doing it, I think one of about 10 things. So it could be, you know, doing a three-point turn or reversing around a corner or teach me how to turn right. In a sense, that's where the acting background came back because quite a few of the people I was training with would be like, I can't, but they know how to do this. I can't do that. And I'd be, no, 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 you've got to, you've got to imagine it's pretend. They're pretending 
that they can't do it and you just have to teach them. And so I was able to accept that they were learners, the examiners, in a way that I think maybe some of my friends who were also studying found that more difficult. So I did that. And then I, so yeah, I became a driving instructor in in South London. And that was, it was a really, it was rewarding because not financially, but you obviously teach a lot of teenagers who are trying to learn to drive for the very first time. And there's something very kind of quite moving actually about having met this 17 year old, literally can't even turn the car on, doesn't know what anything does. And to take them through to pass their test is a really, it's a really lovely feeling actually. So I enjoyed doing that. I think the other thing I discovered is you become, you become almost a therapist for some of your students because you're I think as a driving instructor you're in an interesting position you're an adult Mm -hmm. in their lives particularly for the teenagers I'm thinking but you're not their mum or dad you're not their teacher you're not someone who's too close to them but they see you every week and they can chat and you know what it's like you're in a car you chat Mm -hmm. but it was really you hear all kinds of things people tell you about their lives and you make some really interesting people obviously you get the the teenagers who are learning to drive for the first time, and for a lot of them, that's quite an easy process. It's this is what my friends are doing, and that that's great. But then I think almost the more interesting people were people who maybe had not had the confidence or maybe the resources to learn to drive when they were younger. More older people who were trying to do something that perhaps they tried and failed several times mm-hmm. at, or perhaps they'd never had to drive and were trying to learn later in life. So yeah, it was a very interesting job. It's fascinating. I, I was going to ask you about different types of learners because, and I'm not talking about learner drivers, I'm talking about people learning anything, because it seems to me you've got a test bed there. Because, I mean, how long does it take to learn to drive? It, say you pass your test first time, what are we talking, six months, nine, nine months? We used to reckon it in hours because when I was doing it, you did two-hour lessons. Many years before when I learned to drive myself, I think we just did one-hour lessons. But I think with traffic and everything now, you do two hours. And we would say, roughly, it's 40 hours. From, okay. from a, for a complete beginner to passing, it's 40 hours, mm-hmm. which if you're doing two hours is 20 lessons. So it was very interesting, and people do learn... You hear, don't you? Some people learn visually, so yes. they can, you know, they could. So I would show them like diagrams, and we'd work with little toy cars. I had a big print out of a road junction, and we'd do little cars about, you know, where would the car go and which car should go first and what should that car do. But some people wouldn't. That wouldn't work for them. Mm. For them, it would have to be verbal. It would be describing it, and for some people, it was doing it. It was actually the physical, almost the muscle memory, mm. of having to reverse round the corner or do a turn in the road, you'd have to do it and do it and do it and then they would get it. Whereas some people it would be, as I say, visual or verbal. And people do learn, don't they, in different mm. ways. We we all we all do. I think that's one of the things I discovered. It's finding that method for that student. How do they learn? Because once you could find that, it was obviously everything became a lot easier. Mm. If you're trying to teach someone who learns visually by just talking to them the whole time, it's not going to work. Yeah. And it's not them being dim and not picking it up, and it's not me being, you know, dim and not explaining it properly. It's a question of, like, two languages not quite speaking mm. to each other properly. So I found that really interesting, how different people learn 
and how they they can then put into practice what you're trying to teach them. It sounds incredibly interesting because, as I say, the reason I asked about the length of time, if you're saying 40 hours, it's actually, you know, it's not like a, you know, a school career or even a university degree or, or, you know, apprenticeship. It's Mm. a relatively short period of time. Yeah that you can see the effect of what you're doing and you can observe how people react. Yeah, and it was really lovely to see some people really grow in confidence by learning to do something that perhaps they never thought they could do. Mm. You could see their confidence improve in other ways as well, and that was really interesting. Because, of course, this, this podcast is about success and failure. Yeah. I mean, everybody probably who has ever learnt to drive will remember, did you pass first time or second time? Or How about you? Uh, I actually did pass first time. Oh, I know, of course, course I did. did. But they do say some of the best drivers are people who failed and then had to go and work at it a bit more, that perhaps actually passing first time, doing well first time at anything, perhaps isn't always the best for us. Maybe it is better to fail and have to try again. And that was the great thing I thought about driving, that I would always say to pupils if they had failed, and they'd obviously be upset or disappointed or angry. And I would always say, look, there's a, you know, there's another day. You can come back and do it. And as long as they understood, I think, why, and most people, I would say 99 times out of 100, they knew. Yeah. They knew they'd mucked up something yeah. or they just got nervous. It, the hands would shake. And, you know, handshaking when you're trying to control a steering wheel isn't helpful. And you could see some people were just so nervous they couldn't do it. And it was almost the process of having sat a test meant that the next time they knew what to expect mm. and they were able to do it. So, OK, so you're not a driving instructor now. So what happened, what happened there? So then I did a kind of another full circle, having decided to be a driving instructor because I didn't you know, particularly enjoy office politics, et cetera, et cetera. The downside, of course, as I discovered about being a driving instructor, is it is quite lonely. Ah. Because, yes, of course, you chat to your pupils, but a lot of the time you're in the car on your own and it can become a bit solitary. And I'm not a solitary person. I like being with people. So I ended up getting a job for it was a marketing job is this is the easiest way to explain it working for a company who they provided services to the nhs if you think about the nhs it's not just doctors and nurses there are all kinds of people who work for the nhs accountants obviously cleaners porters a a huge amount but the company that i worked for they provided financial services to the nhs so for example a hospital trust might say our director of finance has gone off on maternity leave. We need someone to come in and manage that, perhaps for a year as a contract, or perhaps there will be other aspects of it. There's a lot of fraud, sadly, in the NHS. So we had a whole counter-fraud team who would go in and try and work out where somebody might be trying to fiddle. So it's all different things like that. I didn't do any of that. I worked for the, the marketing side. So again, I suppose it was the whole, you know, words thing, basically promoting the company, promoting the different services that we could offer to different hospital trusts. And it was fun. It was a, a an interesting dynamic because my husband also worked for 
same company at one point in the same team and then I moved to a different team so there was that was interesting um and I think I think we probably would both say it was better working in different teams because otherwise it's a little bit much of literally seeing somebody all during your working day and then at home as well much as we love each other so that was a fun job and again lots of different people I created this kind of staff newsletter because there were so many different sort of disparate parts of the company and nobody really knew what anybody else did. So again, perhaps with my journalism background, I said, well, I've got a bit of spare time. What about if I start a staff newsletter maybe every month and just kind of round up and we'll interview a different member of staff from different teams different offices across the country, little quiz, stuff like that. And it was quite fun, actually, and interesting to go to conferences, you know, just meet different people and try and promote in an imaginative way something that is a bit dry and specific and, you know, trying to promote finance within the NHS and how we would help you. It doesn't kind of jump out of the page at you. So we try and find kind of more innovative ways to to kind of get the word out there as to what the company did and offer really essential services to different NHS trusts. Obviously, we weren't the only company doing it, but, you know, just to try and try and promote it. So it was, uh, it was fun. It was a sort of uh, a mixture of words and visual stuff and, and a really, really lovely group of people to work with, actually, including my husband, just for the record. So that's a different job. And I can see the thread. I can see what mm. you're saying about the people side of things. And for me, what's interesting about that is that that's not something that you would traditionally see on a CV. You know, what you might see on a CV, obviously you see people's experience, but People tend to put hard skills on CVs, don't they? They'd be yeah. like, oh, you know, I can, I don't know, I'm good at maths or something. Yes. I don't know. Yes, I could do Excel or something. I think the word ninja gets used with Excel quite a lot. <laughs> because they're very different jobs, I'm assuming you managed to sell yourself on the basis of your people skills. Yeah. But, but how do you do that when I think those soft skills tend to be quite undervalued in, in on CVs and, and in the recruitment process generally? I think you're right. And I think I remember having a, a section on my CV near the top, which was like transferable skills. But it was, it was, it was promoting the skills rather than necessarily the actual jobs. Because yes, any employer would have looked at my CV and gone, well, this is a bit random, isn't it? This is a marketing, a marketing yeah. role in a company selling services to the NHS. And you're like, yep, I'm a driving instructor. Yeah, right yes, now. because I've been a driving instructor. So, you know, that'll work. I think, again, it's, I think it's about, like you say, those skills that you learn and you learn them in all jobs Mm. and you don't always maybe realise you've learnt them until you've started doing something else and you think, oh, yeah, no, I'm I'm better at that now because I had to do this two or three years ago. So, yeah, I think that would be what I would have based it on and presumably what employers saw and Mm. thought, well, okay, yeah, she, she's never done this before, but she has done lots of other stuff and seemed to do well at it. And therefore, why not? We'll see what happens. Okay. So, yeah, but I do think it's the skill set and being able. And there's also, I think, an adaptability thing. I think even more nowadays, we all have to be prepared to adapt and change our kind of working lives, our patterns, our approaches. 
So I think maybe having a CV that shows, well, I've done that. I started off doing this, then I did something totally different. Then I did something even more different. But I managed to do them. So therefore, if you want me to do this job, well, I could do that as well. I mean, within limits. I couldn't be a brain surgeon, obviously. So I imagine that requires some more specific training. But I think the idea that you can bring what you've learnt in a completely different role to a new role successfully Hmm. because you're using a lot of the same skills, I think, in I think a lot of jobs, I'm not talking about maybe the sort of specific job-related skills, but people skills, organisational skills, confidence, those kind of things I think are applicable in any role. And so if you've been able to demonstrate them in a a previous job, I think in place today I would hope I'm a bit more open-minded and imaginative and would be able to see in someone's CV today well, yeah, actually, yeah, they can do that. So they should be able to bring what they learnt from that job. You, you're very persuasive, Camilla. <laughs> I think that's that's the key element of it. Because so there's a couple of things that, that that struck me when you were talking there. One was how you turned what I'd always assumed would be a bit of a black mark on a CV. You know, um, one job, then something different, and you turned that in very eloquently into a positive. <laughs> You know, yeah. perfectly reasonably, you know, you're saying, well, yeah, this is somebody who's adaptable. Yeah. There's a core set of skills there, but they can kind of move around. Mm. I've never thought of it that way. So that's been really interesting. So the other element was when you were talking about leaving wisdom, I was just waiting for you to say, and I went into a journalism job with somebody else. Yeah. And when you didn't say that and you went completely left field down the driving instructor path, I think I felt a momentary bit of panic I genuinely (laughs) did because and this is why I interview people like Mm. you is because my career path isn't like yours and I'm fascinated with people whose career paths are like that mine has always been roughly speaking around the environment and and economics and climate change that's that's what I do so the idea of me stepping into like of me becoming a driving Mm. instructor is genuinely terrifying because it's so different and so far outside my comfort zone yeah. that I don't know how I could cope with it. So I'm wondering how you deal with that. I, I guess, one, it's presenting yourself in those situations, and two, it's how you feel inside yourself that you're like, yeah, all right. I think that's it. I think that having perhaps the inner confidence to say, yes, I'm going to try this, I'm going to give it a go, I think that's almost like a first step. And then... It's that thing of, if I've done this once, I can do it again. If you've changed paths once and it worked out, you can change it again and it will work out. Of course, it might not. I mean, it's been fortunate for me that it has worked out. Mm. But of course, it might not have done. So, you know, I think I'm, I'm a fairly optimistic person. I work on the principle that most things will probably, in the long run taken as a whole, generally work out for the best. But I mean, you know, I could have, I suppose, taken one of those jumps, those, you know, 360 degree turns, and it could have gone horribly wrong. But I suppose if it had, I'd have tried something different. I think if you have one of those careers where you have known from an early age what you want to do, and you are devoted to that, you wouldn't want to jump about. Maybe I did it because I'd never really settled on the path I wanted to take. So I was happy to change and try different things. Whereas if I'd known 
I don't know, from an early age I wanted to become a doctor, I would have followed that set path to medical school, to becoming a trainee doctor and so on and so on. So I think it depends on the person, doesn't it? If you if you know what you want and you know it very clearly, great. But equally, it doesn't mean you couldn't try something different. It's a question of whether you want to try something else and whether your circumstances allow you to try something else, give it a whirl. But then again, some people are very happy and very good at doing a particular role and want to do it to the best of their ability. Are, are we up to date now then from the, or, or are there more jobs in the... No, I think we're up to date actually. I don't think I've got, got any more to tell you about. So I ended up choosing to leave the marketing job really around the time my daughter was starting school. We had various things happen that meant financially I was able to be at home, which was very fortunate. And that's been fantastic. So yeah, so since then... I've done various things more on a kind of voluntary basis, but not in a paid role. And so, yeah, I think that is the last official job that we need to cover. From there, you've done some freelance work, is that right? Yeah, a little bit, but nothing, yeah. nothing particularly fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> it's all fascinating, Camilla, you know that. It's the, it's the minutiae that's interesting in Serendipity Soup. I think the, the kind of bold claims mm. and, and sort of big picture shoot for the stars stuff is um, yeah. is dealt with very well by the entire internet and i think it's also i mean i can look back at all the jobs i've done and i can pick out something that i've learned not necessarily about the actual job not i.e teaching someone how to drive or how yeah. to market an nhs company but more life lessons that you take from different people that you've met from different experiences and I think that's one of the things maybe you get from trying different things because you're always meeting new people and you're trying different you're you're testing different aspects of yourself finding out what you can do I was funnily enough reminded earlier today I happened to have contact with the lady who was my boss at the NHS company who was a, a lovely lady and she taught me something that I've it's always stayed with me. I think I'm, as I said, quite a good people person. Part of our job was to call, obviously, people up and chat to them about different role that might be coming up or a different advertising campaign we were doing. And one day I got someone on the phone who was just really abrupt, really curt, unpleasant. Mm -hmm. And it kind of, you know, I remember being a bit, oh, okay. And she, I thought it was a really kind of, thoughtful thing that she said she said what we always have to remember is we never know what kind of day the other person is having and it was quite a compassionate way to look at it I thought now the person on the end of that phone may just have been a not very nice person but equally they could have been having a bad day or they could have just had some bad news or something could have happened to throw them off balance mm. and it's something that stayed with me because I think we I don't know, as a society, we're very quick at the moment to judge and to assume and to jump to conclusions about other people's words and actions. And I think we could all benefit from occasionally thinking, well, hang on, I wonder what kind of a day they're having. Have they just had something bad happen? Are they just, are they just having a bit of a rough time? And maybe this isn't what they're normally like? It's a kind of minor thing, but it stayed with me because I thought it is actually quite a good way to treat other people that we never can know for sure 
what's going on in somebody else's life. So it's always good to just think, well, hang on, you know, before I assume that they're just unpleasant or rude or stupid or horrible, maybe I'll just take a moment to think, okay, let's see. Maybe they're, maybe they're not. Maybe it's just I've actually happened to meet this person on the worst day of their life yeah. and they're just not in the right place and they're not frame, right, right frame of mind. But it's really hard to remember it, isn't it? When In the heat of the yeah, moment, it's really course. hard to withdraw that judgment and just yeah. let it go. And I think it obviously, when you know people well, you know whether it's really them, really yeah. the way they normally are, or if they're just having a bit of a bad day. But it's when you meet people for the first time, it, it's difficult, isn't it, to, mm. to judge. And some people are good in social situations. If you meet them, I don't know, at a party or a, or a work event, some people are quite good at you know coming up and talking to you and chatting away, and some people stand in the corner. And it could be that they're standoffish and rude, but it could just be that they're really, really shy mm. or they don't want to be there. So, yeah, it's interesting. I think the psychology of how people work, how they interact with each other, is I find fascinating. Well, as we're into life lessons, I was wondering, as, as you know, the single question that I always ask people on the podcast is, is how would you define success? I would say finding something that you're happy doing at the time that you're happy doing it and enjoying it, getting fulfilment out of it. I think that would be that would be success. I wouldn't put it in terms of necessarily material worth or career recognition necessarily, but more of a more of a perhaps an internal personal satisfaction of thinking, yeah, actually I'm doing this well and I'm enjoying doing it, so I'm getting something out of it, but I'm also hopefully providing something in this particular role that maybe somebody else wouldn't have done. That's interesting because you won't be surprised to hear that, that a version of that comes up quite a lot of the time. But the element that you've added is is the time element to it, that there's a moment where that, that is feeling right for you and that maybe that moment will pass mm. and that it's always worth kind of checking in, to use that awful American phrase, to whether that is still something. So something that gave you that feeling of success five years ago might not be that same thing no. now. Exactly, because we all change, don't we? We... We as people, you know, we grow, we develop, we discover new interests, new skills within ourselves. So, yeah, I think it's, in a way, I think people who can do the same job for their entire life, I'm fascinated that anyone can do that because what do you find? What do you keep finding within yourself or within the role to challenge and excite and interest you? Perhaps I'm not that sort of person and, and somebody who can do that would not understand the, the more shifting sands of a career. But I think, yeah, I, I think we all, we all develop and so there's always a chance to change and to learn and to try something new. Fantastic. You've been such a great guest, Camilla. Oh, thank thank you. you for all your surprising forks in the road. Did you see what I did there? Very good. Yeah, thank Very you. Good. Uh, so it's been lovely to have you on the podcast and thank you for your time. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been great fun. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Huge thanks to Camilla for her positivity and eloquence. Thanks also, as ever, to Julian Holmes for his awesome cover artwork, to Anna Gunn for editing, 
to Acast for hosting the podcast and, of course, to you for listening. Remember, if you think you or someone you know could add some flavour to Serendipity Soup, get in touch. You can email me at soupofserendipity, or one word, at gmail.com, message me on LinkedIn, or tweet me using the handle at soupserendipity. Thanks again for listening, and see you soon for another serving.